all you have. You are now tuned in to Marcus Rays. You just sat back and ready to play. Let me take your thoughts far, far away. Now let's hear what Darth Vader has to say. We would be honored if you would join us. Hey there, Star Wars family. It's Kyle, your solar navigator, guiding you on this out-of-this-world web show known as Star Wars Audio Archive. Today we are venturing into the thrilling and dazzling episode 6 of Light of the Jedi. Imagine us rocketing across the cosmos, dodging asteroids and soaring past distant planets, with the power of the Force as our ally. We're set to explore the stories of the High Republic, can our valiant space champions outwit the sinister villains? The excitement is boundless as the universe itself. Brace yourself for an episode with brimming and heart-pounding action. Dive into mysteries as deep as a black hole, and witness acts of valor that will have you jumping out of your space boots. Ready to embark on this legendary quest with the Jedi? Prepare for hyperspace, my fellow adventurers, and let this cosmic journey begin right now. No space. Who are we? Pan Ata roared his already deep voice bellowing out of his huge chest, amplified and distorted by the mask he wore, which was itself a distorted version of his native Doatan face, with massive heavy brows and horns sprouting from his chin. His words crashed out across the sea of faces staring up at him and the others at his table. Most in the crowd wore masks of their own, of many designs, but one purpose. A few thousand people, from many worlds across the galaxy, unified by a desire to take, and kill, and eat. Came the response, a thunderclap rolling back at him. Let's do it right, Lorna D cried, lifting a clenched fist on a thin bare arm cabled with muscle. She was twilight of about 40 years, wick thin with green skin, the color of swamp water, emaciated leku with bone white stripes dangling from the back of her head. She wore armored leather made from the hide of a kel dragon and a mask to match, with just the one arm bare and a single long bladed knife sheathed on her thigh. Lorna stood next to Pan Ata on a raised platform at one end of the great hall of the Nihil, at a banquet table covered with rich food and potent liquor. Dozens more of these tables were placed throughout the hall, amid towers of flame pushing back the endless night. They were laden with indulgences for all to consume from as they chose. Food, drink, drugs, as much as they liked. The Nihil shouted back. The third and final of the Tempest Runners shouted his own question. This was Cassif, an aged weakway with skin like sun-dried meat, wearing only a fur cape, stained leather trousers, and his own mask, a thin plate of hammered metal with slits cut into it for eyes, nose, and mouth. A horrible parody of a face. Gorgeous! He bellowed. <laughs> Came the answer. And at these words, the Nihil turned toward another platform, set lower than that of the Tempest Runners, where one person sat alone at an empty table. 
Marciano. He wore a mask too, but not like the others. His was unique, even in the great hall of the Nye Hill. Smoked transparasteel, with a single symbol slashed into it. A primitive, brutalist etching. Swirls and lines that evoked a stylized, planet-killing superstorm as seen from space, with its central eye centered roughly over his face. His clothes were simple, black pants and jacket over a sleeveless white tunic, and tight leather gloves with padding at each knuckle. His limbs were long, and what parts of his skin were visible were slate gray. He wore no obvious weapons. Marcion tilted his head back, gazing out into the void that surrounded them all. Strange lights flickered in the far distance at the edge of vision through the full spectrum. The Nihil called this place No Space, and only they knew how to get there via secret roads through tortuous hyperlanes unmapped in the galactic databases. Roads delivered by Martian Rowe and his father before him. The great hall of the Nihil had no walls or ceiling, just invisible vacuum shields, creating a dome of breathable air above a broad durasteel platform hundreds of meters long. It looked and felt as if it were adrift in the great nothing. The symbolism was obvious and intentionally so. With the Nihil, <laughs> all was light and life. Outside, <laughs> cold, empty death. What do I see? Marcian Rose said, his voice quiet, a breath. Not a scream. The crowd hushed to hear it. What does your eye see for the Nihil? Whatever we want! Came the answering roar. Immediate, every voice lifted, hungry and certain and joyful. Marcion looked at Pan Eta and nodded. This was the Doatin show. The gigantic being adjusted the lapels of his leather suit, stylishly cut, its pale turquoise color chosen to set off his yellow skin. That's right, Pan said. Whatever we want, just like in Leptolis, we kill that convoy dead. We ripped those ships down to the bones and took everything they had. And now, everyone who fought alongside me there gets a share through the rule of three. With the Nine Hill, everyone eats. Pan Ata pointed out off the platform into the strange wilderness of no space the emptiness was interrupted only by the fleet of ships that had carried the Nihil to this place. Martian Rowe cast his eye across the vessels. No two exactly alike, and all reflecting the taste and cultures of their owners to some degree. They did all share a certain brutalist aesthetic, and the glowing green half-spheres that were the path engines. The navigational miracle provided to the organization by Martian. 
his father. The Nihil's ships, large or small, looked like armored spiked fists, coming to pound you into nothing and harvest your corpse. No curves where a straight line would do. Sharp edges, a lack of overall symmetry. The smaller, fighter-like starships, larger cloud ships and storm ships, all the way up to the three corvette-sized vessels of the Tempest Runners. Kasev had the new elite. Panata flew his Elegencia. And Lorna D? <laughs> she called her ship the Lorna D. Much larger, imposing, looming behind the rest of the Nihil fleet with a silhouette like a marine predator was Martian Rose Flying Palace and Fortress. Its empty, echoing corridors, the only home he had. The Gaze Electric. That's why we all came here today, Pan Aetis said. That's why we're celebrating. We fly together, and we die together. And when we come back, we reap the rewards! Pan gestured toward Lorna D and Kasev. I also gotta give my gratitude to my fellow bosses here. Abdallah's was a job that came through my tempest, but both Lorna D and Kasev gave support with their crews. They all get their peace, too. He reached to the table and lifted a massive goblet of spiced wine, showing it to the crowd, then turning to Martian Roe. And here's to the Eye of the Nihil, who gave us the path to make it all happen. Couldn't have done it without him. Panata tilted his head back, lifted his mask, and drained the goblet wine splashing to the floor. The crowd roared its approval, and Martian Lowe held up an acknowledging hand to the cheering Nihil. But you know, Pan said, setting down his goblet. We could have done better. There were six freighters in that convoy, and we only took five. He affected a dissatisfied air, shaking his huge head. We lost one in the attack. One of them blew up just as we were ripping it open. And whatever it had for us... Now it's just hot dust. He arced out his arm, sweeping it across the great hall. Where's the storm who was in charge of the crew assigned to that freighter? A ripple across the assembly as heads turned looking to see who would own up to the mistake. A few long moments passed, but eventually the pressure grew too great, and a man stood, part of Lorna D's Tempest, by the minimalist clothing he wore. His species was hard to identify, but his mask had big, curling horns running down over the ears, little white slits for eyes, and the ever-present filter assembly over his nose and mouth. The better to survive the various chemical weapons of the Nihil, often used in their raids. He had three jagged white stripes on his tunic, signifying his rank within the organization. 
Pan Aegis said, turning to Lorna D. Looks like he's one of yours, Lorna. You mind if I... Be my guest, Lorna said, her voice without effect. She never revealed much of what was going on behind her eyes. Ice blue and ice cold. His name is Sergio. Sergio! Pan Ada cried, pointing at the man. Bring the rest of your crew up here. The clouds and strikes. Sagyar nodded at the group sitting at his table. The mace stood as well. Seven men and women, all masked, all different, except that they shared the white slitted eyes of their leader. The clouds had two of the jagged stripes somewhere on their clothing, and the strikes just one. They walked forward as a group. The other Nihil parting to let them through, to stand before Pan Ada and the others. What happened, Sakyar? He said. Why did we lose a sixth of what we went out there to get? The storm, to his credit, didn't try to dissemble. He just answered, plain and clean. No embellishing or hiding the truth. Marcion Rowe respected that. One of my strikes. Kid named Blit. Miscalculated or harpoon shot. Hit one of the freighter's fuel tanks. That's all it took. Boom. I thought it was something like that. You see here? That strike? No. Blit died in the explosion. Most of my crew did. I've only got these seven left. A couple clouds and five strikes. Zagyar gestured at his people. I see, Pan said. But someone has to pay for that mistake. Everyone lost when that happened. I lost. He pointed down at Martian Rowe, still seated at his own table, a meter or two below the Tempest Runners. The I lost. It needs to be made right. For the Nihil. Zagyar again showed no fear or anger, just responded, clear and honest. Martian Rowe could see how the man had become a storm, and that was not an easy thing to do. He rose in rank in the Nihil by succeeding, and by doing whatever it took to make sure other people didn't. The strike who screwed up pain with her life. Seems like that's something. It's something. But that strike isn't here. You and your crew are all responsible. One of you could have given Blit better guidance. Could have helped her. You didn't. And there has to be a price. And someone has to pay it. I'll let you decide. Zagyar hesitated. Looking at his crew, one after the other, the masks making it impossible to know what they were thinking. A chant began, at the back of the hall, and rapidly moving forward, until every one of the Nihil was saying the same three words. Zagyar's crew tensed, looking at each other. Quick little furtive glances, 
not knowing who would be the first to move. Blasters were forbidden in the Great Hall, but they all had their blades, and hands were reaching toward hilts. Yes. Marcion Rowe turned his head, looking toward the edge of the platform, where a line of glowing blue-white lights marked the border between light and life and freezing void. He hated the little pageants Pan and Lorna and Kossov put on, pitting clouds and strikes and storms against one another. The Nihil all worked under the same banner, and all used the paths Martian gave them. But that was as far as it went. They were chaos. Everyone out for himself. Each tempest ready to undercut the others. Any Nihil would slit another's throat at the slightest provocation or opportunity for profit. The paths could take the Nihil anywhere in the galaxy, but they refused to see it. The only one who could see the potential of the organization was, inevitably, the Eye. But the Eye was not in control. Each Tempest had its own boss, its runner, and Martian Rowe had no real influence over what any of them did. He got his share of the payouts of any jobs that used his paths by the rule of three, but that was all. The Eye could see, but the Eye couldn't act. Sounds of struggle came to Martian Rowe's ears, but he didn't turn to look. Someone was paying the price. He watched. All the Nihil watched, as one of Zagyar's crew was dragged to the edge of the platform, screaming and pleading about how unfair it all was, how loyal they were. Martian Rowe didn't know who had been chosen. Maybe Zagyar himself. It didn't matter. The lesson was clear. Every Nihil was expected to contribute. Either you made the organization richer, or you made it stronger. And one way to make something stronger was by removing what was weak. A body drifted away into the void of no space, still moving. Not for long. Pan Eta turned back to the Nihil. He spread his arms, taking them all in, while gesturing simultaneously at the feast tables and fountains filled with various intoxicants and death sticks and piles of up powder and down fire. Now enjoy yourselves, my friends. You'll learn this. He stepped down from the tables as the Nihil resumed their celebrations. If any of them harbored misgivings about what had just occurred, they kept it hidden behind masks and fistfuls of food and sniffs of powder. Music kicked up, loud, with a sound like sheets of metal being hammered in complex polyrhythms. We need to talk. Marcian Rose said, looking at the three Tempest Runners. Kossov frowned. It's a party, Marcion. Didn't you hear, Pan? Lots to celebrate. Why don't you just relax? Marcian Rose stared at the man for a full three seconds. There's business to discuss, he said. 
It's important. I want to talk about it while we're all in the same place and before you three get too drunk to think. The Temple Strummers looked at one another, none of them happy. Lorna D shrugged. Fine, Martian. Fine. Let's go on back. Martian Rowe stepped down off the raised platform and walked toward the far end of the platform, the Tempest Runners falling in at his side. Nihil at all levels reached out to them, offering hands and greeting, desperate to make some connection with the organization's leadership. The group reached a small structure built at the far end of the Great Hall. It housed the airlock and docking mechanisms, as well as a small complex of rooms that offered privacy when required. Two droid sentries guarded its entrance and bowed their heads as Martian and the Tempest Runners passed. The droids were well over two meters tall, matte black, and in lieu of rudimentary features, the three lightning bolts of the Nihil glowed on their faceplates in sharp blue-white. They carried no weapons and needed none. Their limbs and bodies were studded with sharp spikes. Their hands set in fists made of heavy alloys that could smash bone and tissue into pulp. Inside, once the entry portal had sealed, Martian turned to face Kasav, Lorna D, and Pan Ata, each solely responsible for and with complete authority over a Tempest, one of the three great divisions of the Nihil. Goodbye, Kasav said. Kasev was always the first to talk, predictable as the sunrise. Either he hated silence, or he was pathologically focused on ensuring no one ever forgot he was there. Martian Rowe pulled off his mask, reaching up and running a hand through his long, dark hair, untangling it. The energy in the room changed. Even though the Tempest Runners had seen Martian unmasked many times, his appearance tended to have a particular effect on those around him. Slate gray skin, holy black eyes, a certain angular leanness to his physique. For many of the galaxy species, the features of Martian's people meant predator on some deep instinctive level. Is it... A good party, Kasev, Martian said. All I saw was a big party. Numbers. Lots of new faces out there. From all three of your tempests. We always need new blood, Pan Ata said. His voice was so low, some of his syllables dropped into subsonic ranges giving him a wavery, resonant tone. Strikes find other people to join. And when they get enough of a group under them, they move up to become a cloud. If they make the name, they get to be a storm. That's the way it works since always. You know this. Been like that since back when your father was the Eye. Martian Rowe was more than a little certain that one of the three people standing before him had murdered his father, Asgar Rowe. Custodian of the paths, 
and eye of the Nihil, until Martian inherited the position and all that went with it on Asgard's death. But he didn't know which of the Tempest Runners had done the killing, and he was just the eye. They were the bosses, and had a thousand soldiers each. He only had one real ally, and she wouldn't be much good in a fight. I know the way it works, Pan, Martian said. But the paths aren't a limitless resource. Too many people means we can get spread too thin. We need to slow things down. No one's gonna like that, Lorna D said. We don't slow down. We're the Nihil. Martian placed his index finger on his helmet. The paths come from me. So now I'm saying we need to be a little careful about the next stage. That's all. Is this about the Republic again? Panata said. We've been over that. We know they're opening that station, that starlight beacon thing. But that doesn't mean they'll be coming after us. They think we're small time. They've never bothered us before, and they don't even have a military. How would they get us anyway? We've got your paths, right? The Doatin adjusted his suit again, that polished turquoise leather. Pan was particular in his tastes. Everything was well chosen, from his clothes, to the food he ate, to the music he listened to. The Nihil and his Tempest tended to be the same way. From the beginning, Pan had chosen his first strikes, and they had chosen theirs, and like called to like. Each of the Tempests reflected its runner. Pan's people were precise, planners. Kossov's group was chaotic and impulsive. All of his strikes and clouds and storms chasing the next score, the next insane story they could brag about while so high on Smash they could barely talk. Lorna D's group was subtle, introverted, keeping their intentions close until the result was achieved. Also, in general, her people were the cruelest among all the Nihil. It's not just the Starlight Beacon. It's that legacy run thing in Hetzal, Martian said. These emergencies are causing disasters all over the Rim. My people in the Republic tell me they're digging in hard. They've set up an investigation. Even pulled in the Jedi. Jedi, Kossif said, baring his sharp little teeth. I've always wanted to kill one. <laughs> that a big story to tell. <laughs> Marcion knew Kossiv had never faced a Jedi. Neither had Marcion Roe. But his family had a history with them. And he had grown up hearing stories. Even a few could destabilize or destroy the grandest aspiration. They could tap into something. It wasn't just the Force. It was their order itself. It gave them a confidence 
a structure, a willingness to make choices to serve the larger purpose of spreading light in the galaxy. It made them bold. It made them strong. He was not afraid of the Jedi, but only a fool wouldn't consider them a serious threat. You're welcome to try to kill as many Jedi as you want, Kasiv, Martian said. Just give us the name of the storm you think should take your place as Tempest Runner after you're dead. He waited before speaking again, letting his gaze shift to each of them in turn, letting his cold, dark eyes do most of the work. The silence turned to tension and Martian just kept watching, daring any of them to challenge him again. They didn't. They wouldn't. Not openly, anyway. He knew any one of these three would cut off his head in an instant if they knew how to access the paths directly. But he kept that secret close. Here's what I'm worried about, Martian said. All three of you run your operations pretty independently, and you have crews doing raids all over the Outer Rim. Chancellor So put a hyperspace blockade in place, and it gets bigger with every emergence. The Nihil are just about the only ships that can travel these days, because we have the paths. What if the Republic comes across a Nihil crew and figures out we can do what we do? Or the Jedi? We don't want the Order on us. Or the Republic Defense Coalition. He shook his head. I know the Republic doesn't have a standing military. Doesn't matter. We aren't big enough to take them on, even if it's just an RDC task force. They'd wipe us out. I say, we need to lie low. No new operations for the time being. No more paths. If your people give you grief, tell them the eye sees something special in the future. Something big. A new... Initiative. Does the eye, in fact, see that? Lorna D asked. A new initiative, I mean. I'm always thinking of the next thing, Lorna, he said. You know that. Kossov and Pan Ata exchanged a glance. Just doesn't sound like us, Kossov said. I call the vote, Martian said. Then I vote this is a big pile of panther droppings, Kossip said. Then I hear don't stop. We need to keep riding that storm. You know, Panata said. I think I agree with Martian. I say we take a little break. Just for a while. Maybe we should take a little time to plan. Strategize. Figure out how we operate if the Republic's gonna be poking around in our territory. <sighs> said Kossiv. Of course! You and your people just got fat off that job at Abdolis, so you don't need to eat for a while. What about the rest of us? 
Maybe you should have given me more of your people to help, Kasov, Pan said. One little cloud worth of crew was all you could spare? Please. Anyway, I don't mind the little break. Maybe I'll take a vacation. Get tickets to the opera on Cato Nymoria. Kasov made a disgusted noise deep in his throat. The rest of the vote was moot. In any decision related to the paths, ties went to the eye. A long-standing rule. With Pan's vote, it was at least a two-against-two decision for putting a hold on new Nihil activity. At least until the heat from the legacy run died down. Lorna D. hadn't spoken, but her decision was irrelevant. And it wasn't surprising she had waited to make her views known. She seemed to prefer that people knew as little as possible about what she was thinking. Whether that was pathological or tactical, Martian didn't know. Probably some of both. I guess that's that, Lorna D. said. But I still want to pitch you on the job. Oh? Martian said, his voice thin. Pan Ata and Kasov didn't seem particularly thrilled either. Tempest runners could authorize raids within their own crews without asking any of the others, but anything that would require paths needed a full-on vote. Usually that meant Martian was the deciding factor, because most of the time the two Tempest runners who didn't have a stake in a given job voted against it. Not a bad system, really. As I, Martian was the custodian of the paths. And so he should have the loudest voice in deciding how they were used. I have a new group in my Tempest, Lorna continued. Seven strikes under a cloud. Came to me with a really interesting plan, actually. They found this settler family on the mining world. Very connected. My guys want to kidnap them. Hold them for ransom from their rich relatives. It's smart. No, Lorna. I told you. We all just agreed. No raids until the heat dies down from Hetzal. She stepped toward him. Her thin face focused. Her eyes intense. I'm telling you, Marcion. It'll be easy. The planet is Elfrona, which doesn't have much of a security force. And apparently... The family decided to go all rustic, live way out on their own in the middle of nowhere. Easy pickings. We'll be in and out. Martian went still, which Lorna took as an invitation to keep talking. The cloud asked for some paths, you know, just in case. I know we're under pressure, but this is a new group. Lots of potential. I want to bring them into the fold. Give them a chance to prove their worth. I'm telling you, too. This operation will have a huge payoff. Elfruna. Ah, Martian said. There's a Jedi outpost on that planet. Is there? Asked Lorna D in a way that made it clear she had already known. Marcion went silent. 
the Nihil were not just another group of raiders, like the thousands that operated in the Rim. They were special, powerful, and the reason for that was the paths. In all the ways that counted, they made the Nihil what they were. They allowed crews to use hyperspace in ways denied to every other ship in the galaxy. Micro-jumps. Leaps to locations inside gravity wells. Entering hyperspace from almost anywhere. As opposed to having to run elaborate calculations or travel to a non-occluded access zone. They allowed the Nihil's ships to appear and disappear at will, like spirits. They could be anywhere, at any time, and no defenses could stop them. The paths made the Nihil what they were, but they came from a single, unique, not inexhaustible source. And Martian had placed significant demands upon that source recently, both to fuel the Nihil's growth and to support plans of his own. The Legacy Run disaster was not the only reason he wanted things to cool off for a little while. Lorna Dee's idea, though, it had possibilities. There was no need to hold a formal vote. Lorna Dee was obviously for it, and the eyes two votes would ensure it went ahead if Martian Rowe agreed. Fine, he said. Send me the plan. What you think you'll need, and I'll get you some paths. But do not do anything to get the attention of those Jedi. Get in, grab the family, get out. Thank you, Lorna D said, and left. As ever, the woman never said a word more than she needed to. Kossav and Pan Eta glanced at each other, then back at Martian Row. Pan shrugged. He left, following Lorna D back to the celebration outside. Kossif did not. Martian lifted his mask and replaced it on his head. Dunno how that was fair, Ro, the weak way said. You giving Lorna D a job, giving her paths, but saying Pan and me gotta stop? I got people to feed too! I got like a thousand people in my tempest, and ain't one of them gonna be happy about this. How about I send you some ideas? Maybe you choose one, and I get something going. You get a share too. A full third to the eye, just like always. Don't you want that payday? They returned to the Great Hall walking past the spiked guard droids who once again inclined their heads as the Eye and the Tempest Runner passed. Martian walked to the edge of the platform, Kossov close on his heels, right up against the blue lights that marked the border of the vacuum shields. Your father never would have done something like this, Kossov said. Shutting down the paths? Forget it. Not a school he wasn't any kind of coward. No way! Martian Rowe went very still. My father's dead, Kasif, he said. I'm the Eye now. 
You can do whatever you want with your tempest. But the paths come from me. You don't like it? You want to make a play for me? Try to take what I've got? Go for it. Just be aware. He gestured out of the void. There's a price. The Outer Rim. Elfrona Outpost. What are you waiting for? Loden said. Bell crept closer to the edge of the cliff and peered over. The ground didn't look any closer than it had the last four times he checked. He looked back at his master, who had his arms folded. He was smiling, but it was one of those smiles that felt much more like a deep, disapproving frown. Get on with it, that smile said. Unless you'd prefer to be a Padawan for the rest of your life. The Jedi Order had established outposts across the less settled sectors of the Republic, both as an opportunity to explore new regions and to offer assistance to any who might need it in those wilder zones. Not as large as full temples, they were staffed by crews of three to seven Jedi, often with a wide range of experience. Getting outposted was a common part of the Padawan training regime, and this was what Bell was doing on Alfrona. He and Loden had been there for a while, though they did get the occasional off-world assignment, like the Starlight Beacon Tour, that had ended up with them in the middle of the Legacy Run disaster. They were originally due to be rotated back to Coruscant after that via the Third Horizon, but Chancellor So's hyperspace blockade had gotten them sent back to the outpost for the duration. The Council thought Jedi might be needed in the Outer Rim more than usual during the crisis. So far, though, the blockade didn't feel much different from the usual sort of outpost life. For Jedi Padawan Bell Zedifar, that meant constant orders from his master to do utterly impossible things under the guise of training. The wind kicked up, pushing Bell back from the cliff's edge. He inhaled the unique scent of Elfrona, hot metal and dust. The Order often built its outposts to fit in with the natural surroundings and culture of the planet where they were based. The outpost on Kashyyyk was a huge treehouse. On Moncala, it was a gigantic raft grown from coralite, kelp dangling from its underside, providing a reef-like habitat for local sea creatures as it drifted with the currents. Elfrona was a dry world of slate and clay, topographically diverse. Almost its entire surface was covered by long mountain ranges, composed primarily of iron and other ferrous minerals, which curled along its surfaces in arcs that followed the pattern of the planet's magnetic fields. From orbit, it looked beautiful, like a calligrapher had inscribed the entire world with some unimaginably enormous pen. From the ground, it looked exactly like you would think a huge ball of dusty metal might, a world whose bones were close to the skin. In this hard place, the Jedi had built their outpost out of a mountainside, or rather, into it. A face of the Iron Mountain had been sheared away, carved with laser chisels into a columned temple-like entrance. 
The entrance was flanked by two massive statues of Jedi Knights, their lightsabers out and held in the ready position. The Jedi wore hooded robes of a style that felt like a nod to an earlier era. Above the doors, a gigantic symbol of the Order. The upswept wings, embracing a spear of starlight shining up and out into the galaxy. Bell didn't love Elfrona. He would have been happier with that Moncala posting, for instance, where breezes smelled of sea and life, not rust. But he did love the outpost. It was simple and majestic at the same time. Everything the Jedi should be. It was dawn, and the rising sunlight caught the electrum of the Jedi symbol, setting it alight with reflected fire. The view from the clifftop where he stood could not be improved. It was perfection. Belzedifar, Jedi Padawan, soaked it in. Then he began to turn around, intending to tell his master, Jedi Knight Loden Greatstorm, that he was not ready for this particular exercise today, and wanted to read up on the techniques a bit more before he just jumped off a perfectly good cliff. I believe in you, he heard Loden say from a few meters behind him. Then felt his master reach out to the force, and then something like a hand in the center of his back. And then he was shoved hard, right off the cliff. Some 30 kilometers away was the settlement of Ogden's Hope, a fairly large town built and maintained on the dreams of those who thought they might be able to transform the planet's mineral wealth into a fortune of their own. The mining industry on Alfrona was over a century old, but the planet's governments over the decades had successfully resisted the efforts of the huge galactic concerns to buy up and consolidate its resources. The entire planet was divided into a grid, and no one family, corporation, enterprise, or association was allowed to own more than four claims at a time. That meant much of the planet remained unclaimed. And who knew what treasures might be waiting under the surface, ready to be discovered? Earlier strikes had turned up rare minerals, rhodium and platinum, even stranger substances, a vein of crystals once. Elfrona was a planet-sized treasure vault, and somehow it belonged to everyone who lived there. Ogden's hope, as a place, was well-named. It was a place of possibility where everyone had an equal chance at success and freedom. Chancellor Lena So cited Elfrona often in her speeches as emblematic of the spirit of the Republic. It was a hard place, but generally a good one. To this good place, a family had come, from a populous, wealthy world in the core. A mother, a father, a son, and a daughter. They acquired two claims next to each other, an hour's speeder ride from Ogden's Hope. Longer if you ran into a rust storm. They built themselves a place to live, with the help of their droids. The first version was just a rough, ugly structure of permacrete, nothing more than a shelter from the sun and wind. But in time, it had become theirs. More rooms, more windows, a greenhouse, a second story, decoration, all the little touches that transformed housing into home. 
and dug into the soil, looking for whatever treasures might be beneath their feet. The family could have used their droids to do most of the work, but that was not why they had come to Elfrona, and so they all did their part. The children studied with their droid tutors and grew taller every day. The parents worked and planned and believed they had made the right decision for themselves and their family. Until one early morning, the mother, whose name was Erica, looked up from a delving droid she was repairing to see a strange cloud not far from their home. It was odd, unlike anything she'd ever seen. For one thing, it hugged the ground like a fog bank. But Alfrona was a dry world. There was water, but it circulated deep below the surface in underground rivers and channels. Rain was a once-per-decade event. So fog? No, it couldn't be. Even beyond that, this cloud looked odd. It had a sheen to it, like a metallic blue. Like a storm cloud, really. Though she hadn't seen one of those since she left her homeworld some years back. And it seemed to be moving with direction, or purpose, toward them. Hato? She called to her husband, who was not far away, spreading feed for their small herd of steelies. The long-legged beasts were clustering around the trough, their excitement at getting their morning meal obvious. What do you suppose that is? Otto turned to look. He froze. Unlike his wife, he kept up with the galactic affairs. He had not entirely cut himself off from the news of the Republic, and so he had heard stories and knew what it meant when a storm came creeping toward your home or business or family. Get me, he said, dropping the sack of feed he was holding. I'll find Ron. We need to get in the house and seal it up. Now! Erica didn't ask questions. She didn't hesitate. They were many kilometers from help, and even a good world in the Outer Rim territories was full of danger. She called for her daughter and ran to the house. Run! Otto shouted, not taking his eyes off the cloud. Get in the house right now! Within the approaching fog, figures were beginning to become visible. Ten or so. He couldn't make out details yet, but he knew who they were. He had heard the stories of impossibly vicious marauders who appeared from nowhere and left the same way, leaving nothing in their wake but terror that they would return. The Nihil. Bell reached out to the Force. He knew that as a Jedi, he could survive this fall. He had seen Loden do similar things many times in the past, most recently on Hetzel Prime, but in training, too. Loden could drop like a rock and then slow himself at the last moment for a perfect landing. It wasn't flying. No Jedi born without wings could fly, as far as Bell knew. But it also was not exactly falling. Bell knew it could be done, and he knew Loden Greatstorm believed he could do it. His master, probably, would not have used the Force to shove him off that obscenely high cliff. Otherwise, Bell thought the Jedi Council would frown on inadvertent Padawan murder. But he also thought Loden could talk his way out of it. 
probably by arguing that the Order had no use for a Padawan who couldn't master something as simple as a controlled descent. All of this flashed through Bell's head in the merest second after his plummet began. With a massive effort, he forced himself to focus, to find the flame of the Force within and fan it into greater life. And through it, connect with the air currents rushing past his face and whipping through his dreadlocks. Loden had given him instruction on how to execute this maneuver safely, though he was frustratingly vague in his description of how it was supposed to work. In general, the idea was to guide yourself to the updrafts and use them as a foundation to slow your fall. Once you figured that out, you were somehow also supposed to use the Force to push against the ground as it drew closer. The two elements could slow you down enough to land safely. Bell had achieved it easily enough in temple training when falling from lesser heights, or if dropping onto a repulsor pad that would prevent any real injury. But now, when plummeting from a cliff, facing a horrendous maiming, if he was lucky, he could barely even remember what Loden had told him to do. He knew the real challenge here was not mastery of the Force, but mastery of fear. Always the Jedi's greatest test. A test he was about to fail. And from this height, he knew even Loden Greatstorm could not catch him. This was it. The end. Bell closed his eyes. The fear rushed in, and he didn't even fight it. He asked for serenity, and hoped he would just die quickly and not be left in broken agony on the jagged iron rocks at the base of the cliff. <gasps> the wind stopped rushing past him. Bell opened his eyes and saw the ground a meter or so below him. Then he dropped, hitting hard, though not as hard as he would have if his fall had not been stopped. He rolled over, groaning, and a shadow fell across him. You need to figure this out, Indira Stokes said. Loden really is going to kill you one of these times. She extended a hand, and Bell took it and let the other Jedi pull him up. Indira was the Lothian, with dark skin only a few shades lighter than Bell's own, elegant white tendrils in lieu of hair, and eyes so blue they almost seemed to glow, just like every member of her species Bell had ever met. Her leathers were scratched and worn, with the Jedi insignia in white on one shoulder. She wore her lightsaber holster on a strap of yellow webbing slung diagonally across her chest and kept a dark gray nanofoil scarf wrapped around her neck, useful as a mask in dust storms and moldable into almost any shape she might need. Standing at Indira's side was a small four-legged creature, mostly mottled black, white, and gray, but with spots of red and orange here and there and bright yellow eyes. A charhound, native to Elfrona. She took a few steps forward and nuzzled at Bell's hand. He scratched behind her ears, and the little beast purred with pleasure. I am her, Bell said. Nice to see you too. He gave the charhound one last scratch and looked back at Indira. Did Loden ask you to catch me? He said, brushing dust off his own leathers. Originally bright white, but now well-worn in, stained and mottled. Evidence of hard use. Yep, 
Indira said. No shame in it. No Jedi is perfect at everything from the start. She held out his lightsaber hilt. He hadn't even felt it fall from his side. Bell took it and slipped it into his own holster, worn at his hip. No shame, he said. Loden knew he'd fail from the beginning. I just don't get why he won't let it go, he said. I clearly can't do this. Because one day you'll fall off a cliff for real. And he wouldn't be doing his job if he didn't try to keep you from dying when you do. Jedi fall off things a lot. You need to be ready. Indira turned toward the path that led back up toward the outpost. Come on, she said. Porter is making breakfast. Nine eggs, too. And he told me he found some stone peppers, too. You think Loden will let me eat before he throws me off the cliff again? Bell said. I'll insist, she said. No one should die on an empty stomach. Wow, Bell said. So kind of you. He followed her up the path, Ember keeping pace at his side. Otto lifted the single-lens ocular and set it against his eye. The device had a setting that allowed him to see through walls to pick up heat signatures from outside. Good, because the Nihil had already killed their homestead security cams. The monitors in the safe room were just throwing out static. Now, not all the parts of the fancy security system they'd had installed when they moved out to the claim had failed. The automated reinforced Durasteel shutters had worked as promised, slamming down over doors and windows as soon as the family was safely inside. But without the cams, they were almost blind. All Otto had was the ocular and the rough outlines it provided on its infrared setting. The Nihil showed up as purple and red outlines with strange, misshapen heads. Otto had seen hundreds of different alien species in his day, but he'd never seen anything like the Nihil. It made him think they were probably wearing masks, which aligned with both the stories he'd heard and the fact that they used gas to hide their movements and incapacitate their prey. But knowing that didn't make them any less threatening. They were monsters, looming up from nowhere. The gas was definitely still out there too, even if the ocular couldn't pick it up. The family's herd of steelies were all lying on their sides in their pen, unconscious or dead, and as far as he knew, nothing had touched them. Will the seals keep out the gas? Erica said, evidently thinking along the same lines. That's what the company promised. The safe room's supposed to be impervious to all but the highest levels of blaster fire and impermeable to chemical and radiological weapons. You'd even say explosives, his wife said. What if they brought explosives? Otto didn't answer. Well, whatever they brought, I'm ready to fight, she said, and he set down the ocular and looked over at her. Erica tapped her data pad one final time, then held it up for Otto to see displaying the elements of the plan she had come up with. I think the speeder, right? Yeah, Otto said. At the very least, it'll buy us time. Maybe someone will see the explosion, or maybe the Nihil will just leave. Now it was his wife's turn to stay silent. Any luck, Ron? He called to his son, 13 years old, with everything that came with that age. But now, no angst, no pushback just doing exactly what he was asked to do in an effort to keep his family alive. 
Ron was using the family's comlink, trying to reach someone in Ogden's Hope, who might be able to help. Their daughter B, Nine, was curled up against him for comfort, holding a stuffed fractal toy she hadn't touched for years, as far as Otto knew. I can't get a signal through, Dad. I checked the weather, and there's a big rust storm between us and Ogden's Hope. It's messing with the transmissions, I think. Keep trying, son, Otto said. Your mother is going to buy us some time. A huge boom from below. Not an explosion, but the sound of metal on metal. Otto looked through the ocular again to see that a cluster of four Nihil had gathered around the front door to the house. They were positioned as if they were holding something, all four gripping it together. But the ocular's heat setting couldn't pick out the object. A battering ram made of cold durasteel, he guessed. They're trying to break down the door, Otto said. Another boom. Now, Erica, Otto said. His wife pressed a control on her data pad. Outside, Otto could see their four delving droids coming up out of sleep mode in the droid pen not far from the main house. Their outlines through the ocular were green and yellow. They put out a different kind of heat than the Nihil, but all were clearly visible. The machines left the pen and moved quickly, accelerating through the yard. The delving droids were industrial machines, loud and powerful, designed to punch holes into hard ground and remove the resulting rubble. There was no way for them to move stealthily, even though the gas presumably still circulating outside probably gave them a little cover. The quartet of droids split, two heading for the group at the front door and the rest toward the speeder. Otto took a moment to appreciate the skill in what his wife was doing, simultaneously overriding the autonomous functions of four droids, taking control and making them operate in ways they were not designed to work, running them fast guiding them via feeds from their monitor circuits on a tiny data pad display. All that complexity to manage, and each droid was moving in a straight line, unerring, right toward their targets. Good, Erica. You're doing it. Don't talk to me right now, she said, her voice tight with concentration. Blaster bolts, hot white through the ocular, began zipping out from both sets of Nihil. The four at the front door, and another six clustered around their speeder. The raiders had noticed the approaching droids. No surprise there. The machines were tough, built to withstand high impacts and temperatures. But they weren't impervious. One of the droids stopped moving. Then another. Faster, Erica! They're locking them down! His wife didn't answer. Just flicked him a momentary glance. Otto understood. She was running the droids from her data pad. She knew when they became an operative right away. She didn't need his updates. He knew that. He'd known it when he spoke. He just wanted to do something. From behind him, he heard his son's voice talking quickly, and Otto realized he'd actually gotten someone on the comlink. Ogden's Hope maintained a small communal security force. All the claims paid into its budget every year. Their station wasn't so far away. If the family could just hold on a bit longer... A third droid stopped in its tracks, hot green sparks shooting from where its head had once been attached to its neck. Just one droid left, and Otto watched as the machine barreled forward. 
He saw it dodge an eye hill shot, and again marveled at his wife's skill. What operator could make a delving droid dodge? The one he was married to, apparently. The last droid took a hit, dead center, and his speed slowed to a crawl. Blast it, his wife said. Is that it? Otto said. No, Erica answered, her voice cold and certain. It's not. Otto heard his wife's fingertips tapping furiously on the data pad, and whatever rerouting and adjustment she did seemed to work. The last droid lurched forward, careening ahead at a rapidly increasing rate of speed. The Nihil weren't done shooting, but the droid seemed all but impervious. It lost an arm, then another. Half its head disappeared, but it didn't stop. It reached the Nihil speeder, and Otto yanked his eye from the ocular just before the lens flared white. A huge sound from outside. Not a boom. But a boom! This time, definitely an explosion. The delving droids were mining machines. Sometimes they dug, sometimes they sorted, sometimes they lugged debris, and sometimes they blasted holes in dense metallic rock with small pellets of high-powered explosive. From the sound, Erica had just set off every bit of the droid's load at once. Hm, his wife said. Her tone satisfied. How many did I get, dear? Otto raised the ocular to his eyes and looked outside. The scene was radically altered. The Nihil speeder was gone, as was the delving droid, both replaced by hot, twisted metal and leaping flames. He turned down the brightness, looking for... Ah, there. He counted outlines. Four close to the fire, and none of them moving. But two others were still alive, one slowly dragging himself away from the wreckage, and another being pulled free by the team that had been using the battering ram at the front door. That group, unfortunately, had been mostly sheltered from the blast by the house. Not enough, Otto said. But it helps. He lowered the ocular and turned to his son, who was speaking to B in a low, kind voice. Did you get someone, Ron? Otto said. I heard you on the comm link. Is help coming? Ron looked up. His face was bleak. I got through to Ogden's Hope Security, Dad, he said. I told them what was happening. The man on the other end was asking a lot of questions, and he stopped when I told him the Nihil were here. He... he just... He said they're too far away to get here in time. The man said he was sorry, but he just sounded like he was afraid. I've tried calling back, but they won't answer. Cowards! Erica spat. From below, a sound, a thud, of something heavy hitting their front door, and then a voice. You shouldn't have done that. It called, floating up from outside low and strange. We were just going to take you. Thud. Now, we're going to hurt you too. You want more stew? Porter Engel said, looking down into Bell's empty bowl. 
Falling's hungry work, I guess. <laughs> Across the table, Loden chuckled. Mel didn't care. He was over it. He'd figure out the Force falling eventually. And even if he didn't, that was no reason to turn down a second bowl of Porter's nine-egg stew. Porter Engel was a legend. He'd been in the Jedi Order for over 300 years. A burly Ikruki, who, at this point, was more beard than being. He'd explored full careers in most of the primary Jedi roles in his time. Teacher, explorer, diplomat, warrior. And the stories told about him in any one of those occupations would be enough to ensure his status in the Chronicles. He had just one eye, for example. The other lost long ago. A long scar down his face, a story of its own. But now, he was nearing the end of his span. And his latest and final calling seemed to be Cook. The stew really did have nine different kinds of egg in it. But Porter would only reveal five of them. The remaining sources were either too rare or too revolting for him to divulge. Whatever was in it, the stuff was good. Below the table, Bell felt ember stir. She was lying across his boots, her internal heat warm and prominent even through the thick leather. The Hound was no fool. Of all the Jedi of Alfrona, Bell Zetafar was by far the most likely to slip her a bite or two during meals. The creature had appeared one day at the building's entrance, skinny, trembling, and with an infected wound on her rear haunch. Indira treated her injury. Porter fed her. Bell named her. And Loden had allowed her to stay, declaring that the Force had brought them a new member of the team. That was a neat workaround to the Order's rule against forming attachments, because, of course, you were supposed to take care of your fellow team members and make sure they were safe and happy and well-fed and their coat was brushed and, well... The Jedi of the Elfrona outpost had all become extremely fond of Ember the Charhound. Rule or no rule. Yes, please, Bell said, holding up his bowl. It's fantastic today. It's the stone peppers, <laughs> Porter said, pleased, ladling up another serving of the thick yellow stew. Found some nice hard ones at the market. Veteran Jedi could live wherever they liked, once the passage of time naturally reduced their ability and desire to participate in the more active work of the Order. Most remained at the Coruscant Temple, which maintained lodgings for all its older members to live out their days as they pleased. Porter Engel had taken the opposite approach, actually requesting an assignment to the Elfrona outpost. He seemed intent on remaining as useful as possible despite his age, and an outpost was the best way he knew to ensure his three centuries of Jedi experience could directly help the galaxy. In an average day, an outpost Jedi might be called upon to settle a dispute, defend a town from marauders, bring criminals to justice, teach children, offer medical assistance, or just wield the Force in any of the 10,000 ways it could be used to help people. Not every problem required a Jedi to solve it, but when a problem did rise to that level, people tended to be glad they lived on an outpost world. Starlight Beacon's almost ready for the dedication, 
Lovin said, as Bell dug into his second bowl of stew. Just a few weeks, Indira said. But the Chancellor's hyperspace closures might push that back. Hmm, I hope not, Porter Engel said, taking a seat at the head of the table. It wouldn't be the end of the world if it didn't open on time. But I know it's important to the Chancellor's future plans that everything runs smoothly. I'd like to see it too. It sounds beautiful. It is, Loden agreed. Wouldn't you say, Bell? Gorgeous, Bell said. There's a biosphere zone where visitors can check out actual recreations of various worlds in the Outer Rim territories. Dancing jungle, an ice flat from Magito. <laughs> I liked it. Loden dropped his spoon into his empty bowl. The idea is to showcase the diversity of the worlds out here, he said. They'll rotate the biospheres from time to time, bringing in different creatures. <laughs> it's very ambitious. Indira spoke, not looking up from the data pad she was perusing. The whole station is ambitious, and it's just the first of many, right? The Chancellor's got a whole network of beacons planned, I think. I read about it. That's what they told us at the conclave, Bell answered. Lena So and her great works, <laughs> Porter Angle said. I think she's fantastic. If there was ever a time for beacons and relay networks and outreach, it's now. I remember when the galaxy was just pulling itself together a few centuries back. We couldn't think about anything but survival, really. We should use this time of prosperity to build something meaningful for the future. Do you think the Order's Outpost Network will close down once the beacons all come online? Bell asked. I hope not, Porter said, leaning back and putting his hands behind his head. This sort of life suits me just fine. Every day is a little different. Seeing what comes, helping people however they need it. <laughs> not so bad. He signaled a servitor droid, which trundled over and began clearing the breakfast dishes. They were sitting in the outpost dining chamber, a comfortable, low-ceilinged room, one of eight set just off the main chamber. A tall, circular area designed around a huge Jedi Order symbol inlaid on the floor. Sleeping chambers, the kitchen, storage, the hangar, a sparring room for lightsaber training, all of it accessible from the central zone, just as the Force touched all things equally. Speaking of which, Porter went on, what do you all have on deck for the day? I'm going to take one of the vectors to a spot down in the southern hemisphere, Indira said. Some miners think they found a vein of esurtanium. I've never actually seen it before. Supposed to have really rare properties, maybe even a little force reactive. I was hoping to buy a sample, bring it back here so I could study it. Take Bell with you, Loden said. What, so she can throw me out of the cockpit? Bell said. <laughs> you are very wise, my brother one, Loden said. Well, I'm going to wash the dishes, Porter said. What about you, Loden? A claim to the north is having trouble with the nest of Cromont. I thought I'd go give them a hand. Can't they just bring in an extermination unit? 
Indira asked. Probably, Lonan said. But maybe I want to fight a hundred Cromans. Pell shook his head. He also wanted to fight a hundred Cromans, but he knew better than to ask. He was jumping out of another vector, and that was that. A low whistle from the central chamber, and all four Jedi turned their heads toward the sound. The signal for an incoming transmission on the outpost's emergency comm system. Loden reached out and tapped a control set into the tabletop, bringing the transmission into the room. A voice sounded quiet, filled with tension. Uh, Jedi, this is... Uh, no, don't want to get involved. But there's a homesteader family about 30 kilometers to the southwest of town. Two parents, two kids, the Blythes. I caught a transmission to the Ogden's Hope Security Station. I monitor that channel on my comm link like a hobby. Anyway, they were calling for help. The family's being attacked by the Nihil. Ogden's Hope Security won't go. Afraid, I think. I'd be afraid, too. The stories we hear about the Nihil. But the person who called in, it was a kid. He sounded... It sounded really bad. Maybe you could go out there. Help somehow. I'm sending the coordinates. I can't get involved. Not with the Nihil. But I just... Thought you should know... The message ended. Ember sensed the tension in the room. From below the table, she coughed out one small sound, like a boot stepping on a piece of charcoal. The Nihil, Indira said. The family, Porter Engel said. His voice had gone very cold. Perhaps for the first time, Belle looked at the man and no longer saw the joking, bearded, crocky chef he knew so well inventor of the nine-egg stew. Instead, he saw the Jedi they once called the Blade of Mardota. Let's go, Logan said. Wham bam with a piece of ham. Part six had thrills and chills at every turn. My excitement level is off the chart. Can you believe it? We've come a long way and the adventure is far from over. I'm revved up like a hyperdrive engine on overdrive. Each new part introduces us with even more excitement, weaving a tapestry of mystery and intrigue in this intergalactic saga. But wait, it's time for the quote of this episode, and this quote is one of my favorite quotes of all times. Neil Shutter said, Hope in the shadow of fear is the world's most powerful motivator. I use this quote all the time, so let's break it down. Think of it like this. When you are scared or worried about something, finding that little bit of hope can really push you through and keep you going. It's like when you're in a dark womb and you see a tiny light somewhere. That light, no matter how small, catches your attention and makes you want to move towards it. Now this is how you can use this in real life. Imagine you are going through a tough time. Maybe you worry about not having enough money or you are dealing with some big problem at your home. It feels like you are surrounded by darkness, right? That's the fear part. But then you find something to be hopeful about, like a new job opportunity or someone who is there to help you. This little bit of hope is like the light in the darkness. It motivates you or gives you a reason to keep going and trying to make things better. You can use this idea in so many ways. Say you are trying to finish school or learn a new skill, but it is tough and sometimes you feel like giving up. 
if you find something to be hopeful about, like the good things that could come from finishing your education or learning that new skill, it can motivate you to stick with it, even when it's hard. So remember, even when things are looking bad and you are scared, finding just a little bit of hope can be a huge motivator. It's like finding a light in the darkness that guides you to a better place. And there you have it, fellow space travelers. That's a wrap for this episode. I hope you enjoyed part six of Light of the Jedi, and I hope you will join me next time for part seven, which is coming in a few days. So until then, may the force be with you. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archives. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quentin McDaniel and was distributed by Swaycast Networks. The High Republic Light of the Jedi was read to you by Jason Odega. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I am your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away.